There's a quote that goes, the best leaders, the best leaders lead today with tomorrow in mind. How? By making sure they invest in leaders who will carry their legacy forward. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, and the college is very familiar with these two verses. May I ask you all to stand as we read verses 1 and 2 together. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So let's read these verses out loud. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You may now be seated. Our theme this Sunday, in this third week of May, is May the Children Flourish. May the Children Flourish. Now I assume that every parent here tonight has that exact same goal for their children, to see them flourish. Now all of the parents here tonight, I assume you guys don't have the same methods. You guys don't have the same child-rearing practices. You guys don't have the same parenting philosophies. But I do understand that every parent here tonight has the same goal, to see their children or their child flourish, to see their child succeed in life. Now, being someone who is not even close to being a parent, I still have a couple years before I become a parent, I sometimes find myself thinking about the future and particularly I feel scared about the future. I'm afraid of the society that my children will have to live in. God and godly principles are quickly being thrown out of every institution. You mention God, you mention biblical practices, and social circles will cast you out. They'll kick you out. They don't want a Bible thumper within their group. So they'll kick you out. Schools, workplaces, they ban Bibles a lot of times. Immoral sins, abominable sins. Those things that we looked as horrible, horrible sins in the past are now quickly being normalized in today's society. Abortion. There's a lot, a majority of people don't see anything wrong with abortion. They don't see anything wrong with killing the, child, the, the life of an, uh, an innocent child. On top of these things, when you go to a public school, what is the main world view? It's not biblical accounts. It is not godly accounts of biblical facts. The main view in schools, in public schools, are secular, humanistic, atheistic, scientific worldviews. They push evolution on the children, on the teens. To think otherwise and to go contrary to what the, the, the public school teaches will, will get you ostracized from your fellow students. Also, the pastor, I mentioned this, because of our digital age, because of the rise of internet and the power of internet, everybody has access to things that, they're not, that, that are, might be bad for them. Now, the, the internet is great because it allows us to accomplish things, but it is also very dangerous for children. Children especially who just search up whatever crosses their mind. You can just, you're one Google search away from finding nasty things. That's the age we live in. 
And I, I assume that it will continue to get worse in the next few years. It's safe to say that in 10 to 15 years when I do have a child, technology will have progressed significantly. These days, have you seen those people with the VR headsets? They can completely teleport and transport themselves to this virtual world. You know, they have their headsets on and they can, whatever they do in real life, it translates to the game that they're playing. It's good technology, but people will use that for evil. And people have already used that for evil, to do evil sins. Technology would have progressed significantly, but I also believe that humanity, morality, will have regressed significantly. I don't know why it's the case, but the more a country becomes developed, the more a country becomes advanced in their technology, the more the people become atheistic, the more the people become secular. Now I'm reading all of these missionary letters that we get from, the, from all the ones that we support, and there's a common thing that we notice. Many of the missionaries that we support in first world countries, their difficulty that they're finding is that no one wants to listen to the gospel. It's very hard for them to find someone that is willing to listen. But you see these missionaries who are in Africa, in South America, they're getting con con converts by the dozens because they're interested in, in spiritual things. It's a scary thought to envision what type of society, what type of environ environment my children will have to grow up in. As we speak today, it's already hard for Christians to flourish in today's society. And I, I assume that it will continue to get worse as time. If, if God doesn't return, it will only get worse. Now I realize that this is not a problem that is exclusive to the future generation or to my generation or to the generation behind us. This has always been a problem for Christians. In the early, in the New Testament, the early Christians probably had the same problems. They would think about the future of their child and they would only see persecution. They would only see hatred and even death towards their child. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in Rome. You would be killed. It was a hard situation. It was a hard environment to flourish in. So this problem that we have, that I have, is not something new. Now I bring this all up to show the importance of raising the next generation. Not just raising them, but raising the next generation well. If the current generation, if the present leaders, if we reserve all of the wisdom that God gave us, if we withhold all of the knowledge, the God-given knowledge that we have been granted, if we withhold all the experiences that we've had and not share it with the following generation, then it is them that will face the consequences. Now Paul was aware of this fact. As Paul was getting older, his joints started to hurt and he can see the end of his Christian race. He realized that he needed to pass on the things that he has learned to other faithful men. In this book, who did he pass it on to? You guys can answer. Who, who did he pass it on to here? Timothy. The next book, he passed it on to a man named Titus as well. Paul passed the knowledge that, he, he's been, that he's accumulated throughout all of his service, 
and he gave it to Timothy, he gave it to Titus, and I'm sure that he gave it to many more unnamed women and men throughout his ministry. I know for a fact that it wasn't just Timothy and Titus that he discipled. I'm sure that he's had many more throughout all his years. There's a quote that goes, the best leaders, the best leaders lead today with tomorrow in mind. How? By making sure they invest in leaders who will carry their legacy forward. I believe that the early church flourished because wisdom, because sound doctrine, because biblical knowledge, I believe they flourished because those things were passed down faithfully from generation to generation, from parent to child to, the, to grandchildren. It was passed down from generation to generation. As 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to, blank, what is it? To teach others also. The reason why we tell others and train the next generation is so that the generation that comes after them will also have that knowledge. And it wouldn't be lost in transition from generation to generation. Now how will the next generation flourish if we don't teach or train them well? If we make scripture of little priority to them, if we make biblical living or, or righteous living something small to them or something of low priority to them, then they too will live their lives later in the future having that same low priority for how to live godly. So tonight, as my title, my title suggests, we need to train up Timothys. We need to prepare for the future and train up leaders today. Let's open the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank Lord for this message that you have given me. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this to uh, really burden the hearts of the, the present leaders, the leaders of today in our church, to invest in the next generation, Lord. And I pray that we would just have this greater burden after hearing your message, Lord. I pray that you would also empower me as I preach your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So there are three different leaders that I wanted us to look at tonight. And each of them have different principles that I wanted to highlight. And so my first point is the rewards of having a good successor. Turn with me to chapter num uh, Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 27. So it's point number one, the rewards of having a good successor. So Numbers 27... And just follow along as I read these uh, five verses. Numbers 27, and I'll start in verse, on verse 18. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take thee Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thine hand upon him, and set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and give him a charge in their sight. And thou shalt put some of thine honor upon him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. Now we go down a little bit to verses, uh, verse 22. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua, and set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation. And he laid his hands upon him and gave him a charge, as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So in this passage, who succeeded after Moses? 
Joshua. There you go, Joshua. Not that Joshua, a different Joshua. Now, this is a unique example. How? Because rarely do we see God specifically tell the current leader who the successor would be. Now, imagine if, that, if it was that easy. You know, God whispered to Pastor White who the next, the next senior pastor of Grace Baptist Church will be. Whispered it to him while he was uh, on his devotions. So Moses had this rare opportunity to be told by God who it is specifically would lead the Israelites after he passes away. And he told them that it was Joshua, the son of Nun. I imagine how relieved Moses would have been at this point. Again, there are many pastors out there tonight, senior pastors who are faithfully serving in, all around the world, and they're nervous because they're nearing the end of their Christian race and they don't have a successor at all. They've been faithfully serving by themselves for years and years and years and they don't really have anybody that they can entrust the ministry to. And they're nervous. That is a common problem, I believe. But Moses, he didn't have this problem. God told him, after you pass away, Joshua will be the one to lead the Israelites. Not only did God tell him who the successor would be, but God, because it was God who chose the successor, you knew he was capable. This wasn't some sort of average Joe down the corner. This was a real man who is able and capable to lead the Israelites. All along the wilderness wanderings, even though it was maybe unbeknownst to Moses, God was already preparing a successor. And it was Joshua. And what a successor Joshua was. He took over the leadership position at a crucial time. They've wandered in the wilderness for years, for years and years and years. They just wandered in the wilderness. Now they're in front of Canaan, about to set foot in the land that God has promised them. And before him were enemies, innumerable enemies. They were surrounded by enemies. Their fortresses looked impenetrable. These were just some, these were, the Israelites were just a band of warriors. It's not like their technology, their, their armor was incredibly advanced. So when they stepped foot and saw the land that God has promised them, Joshua just saw all the enemies, all the tribes that they had to conquer. He saw all the cities that just looked impossible to, to destroy. This was a crucial point in Israelites' history. Giants littered the land. And now he finds himself being the spearhead of Israelites' conquest of Canaan land. This was a very difficult task for any leader. But because Moses obeyed God, rather than choosing someone else that he thought would maybe be a better leader than Joshua, because he decided to obey God, and because Joshua became the successor, as God had commanded, the Israelites flourished. Yes, did they experience defeat during the Canaan land conquest? Yes, they did. One of them was because of Achan. They experienced defeat and loss. But God used Joshua's leadership. He used Joshua's courage to take over Canaan land. And though he wasn't able to completely conquer Canaan land during his life, he did a lot of great work for the little time that he had. He was clearly the right man for the job. He was the, clearly the right pick 
as the successor of Moses. Under his leadership, Israel experienced victory after victory, blessing after blessing, and they experienced firsthand how powerful God was through Joshua. God used Joshua in a mighty way. Because Moses had a good successor in Joshua, the Israelites, they continued to be faithful to God. They continued to be faithful to God's laws long after Moses had passed away. And especially, this is impressive because they were surrounded by false teachings. They were surrounded by false gods. And the fact that they were able to keep their eyes on God, I believe is because God chose a perfect successor in Joshua. He had what it takes to keep the people's eyes focused on God. Under Joshua's leadership, the people spiritually grew and flourished. Under, their, under Joshua's leadership, the people realized how much they needed God. They realized how much God, how important God was to their, to their mission. Under Joshua's leadership, the people understood that the gods of Canaan were to be cast out, were to be avoided and ignored, not entertained or accepted. Under Joshua's leadership, the people knew to fear God and to serve Him with all their might. Under Joshua's leadership, the people realized how much God has done for their nation of Israel. How much impact did Joshua have on the Israelites? Turn with me to Joshua chapter 24. How much impact did Joshua have on the Israelites? So look, at, look with me in verse, on verse 29. Joshua 24, verse 29. And it says, And it came to pass, after these things, that Joshua the son of Nun, the servants of the Lord, died being an hundred and ten years old. And then skip with me, uh, skip down a verse to verse 31. And Israel served the Lord, what is it? And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Doesn't stop there. And all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. The Israelites were a stubborn nation. You leave them alone for a second and now they're all following Baal. They're all following Ashtoreth, Moloch, all these other Canaanite gods. Without a, without a capable leader, they would just go off and start uh, committing the sins of, that, that, that was around them. But Joshua, again, the glory doesn't go to Joshua, ultimately it goes to God. But God used Joshua to really rally the Israelites. The stubborn nation of Israel under his leadership, they served God faithfully. And even after Joshua's death, they continued to be faithful. The generations after him continued to be faithful because of how much impact Joshua had on the elders of the Israelites. And the point I wanted to highlight is, if a good successor can make a, a large nation like Israel continue to flourish, 
then there is no doubt that a good successor, a, a, God, a, a successor that God picked and has chosen, a good successor can make a church flourish and it can make a, a family flourish for years to come. That is the importance of entrusting, the, the, uh, entrusting someone to carry the torch, to carry the light to, for the future generations. That is the reward of having a good successor. But the second point tonight is the hardships of having a bad successor. The hardships of having a bad successor. Turn with me to uh, 1 Kings. 1 The Israelites had a great leader in Joshua. They had a great leader in Moses and they had a great leader in Joshua. And through the, uh, under those two men, they, were, they kept their eyes on God. They kept following the law. But the thing is, Israelites didn't always have a good successor. In fact, they're about to enter a time and period where it's just one bad successor after another. And it's because of one person, I believe. 1 Kings 11. And follow along as I read verse 43. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And who reigned in his stead? Who is it? And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. So just a quick recap. I don't have to go long on this point, but who was the first king of Israel? This should be an easy one. Saul. Saul. I think I heard David. <laughs> anyway. Okay, Saul was the first king of Israel. Then... Who did God choose to be the successor after Saul? King David, the man after God's own heart. Then David chose which of his sons to be the king of Israel? Solomon. So Saul, David, Solomon. And Saul was pretty good in the first half of his, of his, of his rule, but then obviously he became prideful. But David and Solomon were overall great kings. Solomon obviously slipped up. But after Solomon's death, we find that Rehoboam is chosen to be the king of Israel. Now the son of an incredibly wise king, and some consider the wisest king, what could go wrong, right? I mean, if the father was this wise, I'm assuming that the child would have, earned, would have gained some of that wisdom. What could go wrong? Famous last words. Shortly after becoming a king, Rehoboam makes a fool of himself. When he was in front of the people, the tribes, they simply asked Rehoboam whether he could make their lives easier. That's all they were asking for. Under Solomon, life was very difficult for some of these people. And all they were asking Rehoboam was, please lighten our load. Take off the yoke that your father placed upon us. They were simply voicing their concerns and this was a, a situation that could have been easily appeased. He could have easily appeased the people and satisfied the people by lightening their loads. So Rehoboam, after hearing the concerns of the people, he went to get some advice. So Rehoboam, first of all, he went to the, the elders. He went to the council of the old men. And they talked, they talked, and they talked and Rehoboam was probably hearing yada, 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 yada. The elders were talking, 
but Rehoboam wasn't listening. Or at least he listened and didn't like their idea. So he ditched their idea, ditched the, the elders of the council, uh, the council of the old men, and guess what? He said, okay, if I'm not going to listen to the elders, who can I ask? And so he asked his buddies, people who were probably the same age as him, people who probably weren't fully grown yet or mature. He asked his friends for advice. And what was the result of this? What was the result of forsaking the counsel of the old man and following his friend's advice? Well, 1 Kings 12. Let's read firsthand what happened and how much of a mess up he committed here. In verses 13 to 15, just follow along, it says, And the king answered the people roughly. <laughs> they were just wanting their, their, their load to be lightened, but Rehoboam, because of the advice of his friend, first of all, he answered the people roughly and forsook the old man's counsel that they gave him and spake to them after the counsel of the young man, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spake by Ahijah the Shilonite unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And go with me to verse 19 and 20. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. And it came to pass, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Within a moment, it's pretty impressive actually, Rehoboam was able to split the kingdom into two. Because of poor decisions that he made, he took the strong nation of Israel and they were, a very, they were a prosperous nation. They were one of the greatest nations at that time. He took that great nation and he was able to divide it into two. He split them apart. The once united kingdom was immediately divided because of the foolish actions of Rehoboam. Turn with me to 1 Kings 14 now. 21 to 24, just a page later. What was the result of this? What was the result of Rehoboam's rule and leadership? Joshua, when he was the leader, the Israelites followed the Lord. But in, verse four, in chapter 14, verse 21 to 24, we see the nation of the states of Israel under Rehoboam. And it says, And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem the city which the Lord did choose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitis. And Judah did, what is it? Evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they had committed, above all that their fathers had done. For they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also sodomites in the land, and they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Here was the turning point in, Israel's, in the Israelites' history. David, under his leadership, the people followed and kept their eyes on God. 
Solomon, though he started to err later on in his life, for the most part, especially in the beginning of his rule, they kept their eyes on God as well. But here we see a, a shift in Israel's focus. Because of a bad and horrible successor in Rehoboam, Judah started to commit incredibly immoral, immoral sins, the likes of which have never been seen before. In the Bible, it says their sins were above all that their father had done. These were sins much worse than Israel had seen before. And it was because of Rehoboam's bad leadership. Yes, ultimately, Rehoboam is to be blamed. He's the one who made the foolish decision to forsake the counsel of the old men. But you know who I think deserves blame as well? It's obviously his father, Solomon. Solomon is also guilty. He was bestowed an incredible amount of wisdom. He was blessed with a long life as well. His nation prospered. He had plenty of time and more than plenty of wisdom to be able to train up a suitable leader to take over him after he passes away. But instead, he indulged in women and he, indul he indulged in earthly pleasures rather than training up his children. His failure to train up Rehoboam or any really good successor led to the kingdom of Israel splitting into two. And ultimately, I believe it was what led to the captivity of both Israel and Judah. I believe Israel could have fought off the Assyrians if they were a combined nation. But because they were split, they couldn't handle the Assyrians. I believe that Judah would have been able to drive off the Babylonians. But because they were split into two, they had no unity. And they were taken both into captivity in separate periods of time. They continued to grow worse, grow worse in terms of immorality because of bad leadership. Now, Judah, the southern kingdom, they had the blessing of having good leaders. They had Josiah, they had Asa, they had Hezekiah, even Manasseh during his, the latter years of his life. And when he repented, he, he tried to cover up all, all of the things wrong that he committed. But Israel, the northern kingdom, not a single one of them did right in the sight of the Lord. Bad successor after bad successor and bad successor it led to them just completely falling off the deep end. You see the importance of a good successor, of a good leader to take your place after you, you're gone? These are the hardships that we will face if we don't invest into the next generation. And last point, quickly here, and I think that this is the focal point of the sermon. The first two points were just to show the importance of a successor, the ramifications of not having one, and the blessings of having a good successor. But the last thing here is the example of Jesus. We've seen the impact that a good successor has on a nation. And we've also seen how detrimental a bad successor is. And we see how important it is to train the next generation. We've seen the impact a successor can make, but now we have to assess how it is we can best train that generation to follow. Now, we know now how important a successor is, but how can we train the generation effectively? What's the best course of action we can take? And when I talk about leadership, when the leadership is discussed, the best leader I know in the Bible is none other than Jesus Christ. There's none another person in the Old or New Testament that can triumph 
and, and beat Jesus Christ in terms of leadership. Now, I wholeheartedly believe that if you were to just emulate Jesus' leadership style, then you can also produce and be able to train up faithful, godly successors. Now, this can be an entire sermon in and of itself, how Jesus was a, the perfect leader. But the main leadership principle I wanted to highlight and the principle which I believe will have the greatest impact, the greatest impact on the next generation, is simply to lead by example. Is to lead by example. Last pastor, I'll ask you to turn, John 13. John 13, and we'll just read these three verses. I'll come to a closing here. John 13, verses 13 to 15. It says, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Jesus never instructed or commanded the disciples or any of the other followers that he had, he never commanded any of them to do something that he would never do himself. Jesus Christ frequently taught with parables and with lessons, but his greatest lessons came from the actions that he, take, that he took, from his lifestyle. If Jesus had commanded the disciples to humble themselves and wash one another's feet, if Jesus had just simply commanded them and just told them and told them to do it, they most likely would have hesitated. We know that many of the disciples were prideful individuals. They were always trying to figure out who would be the greatest between all of them. They were prideful. They would never bow down before each other and wash one another's feet. They wouldn't do that. They had too much pride to do such a thing. So if Jesus just had commanded them to do it, they probably would have hesitated. But what did Jesus do? Jesus got down on the ground, washed their feet first. He humbled himself first. The God, the King of all kings, humbled himself, got on the ground, and washed their feet. And then he commanded them to follow his example. That made much more of an impact in the disciples' hearts. That quieted their pride. Jesus did it himself first and then he commanded the disciples to follow after him. Jesus didn't exclusively teach with words but he taught with his actions and with his lifestyle. So we've often seen the comparison and I'm going to ask the sound booth to pop up the picture. We've often seen the comparison between a boss versus a leader. And yes, right there. We've often seen this as a popular illustration and we've seen the differences between there. As you can see, the boss is up there in a high pedestal and he's simply commanding the people to do the work. But what does the leader do? Is the leader on top of the pedestal? No, the leader is with the others also pulling and helping with the mission. He's leading first. He's in the front lines. And you can put that away. The leader is always in the front line. And Jesus embodied that. 
he himself was always in the front line. He was winning souls before he told the disciples to win souls. He never bossed the disciples around. Whatever he instructed them to do, he did it himself. And that is why it was so impactful. Here's an excerpt from an article that was discussing leadership. And it says, Leading by example is a leadership style where you model the behavior you want to see in your team members. When you lead by example, you don't just push team members towards excellence. Rather, you actively demonstrate that excellence. The people under you pay a lot of attention to what you say and what you do. If what you're doing and if what you're saying are inconsistent, that inconsistency can lead to frustration and lack of trust. But if you can model the right example, others will be inspired to go along too. The power of leading by example. Pastor White kind of talked about this earlier, but we can teach the next generation all we want about reading their Bible every day. We can go up to the children and say, read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. But if their parents, and if they see their parents always just grabbing their Bibles on Wednesdays or on Sunday mornings, and they, never, and they see dust accumulate on their parents' Bibles, guess what? They're not going to be studious in their Bible study. Their parents aren't doing it. We can teach our children, the, the children to be faithful in attending church. But if the parents are not faithful in attending church themselves, the kids will, be, will start to reason within themselves, if my, if my mom and dad aren't going to church either, why do I have to be sentenced to go to church? It's like a prison sentence. We can encourage them to pray, but if they've never seen us on our knees praying and making intercession and, and, and bringing up pleas to God, if they, the children never see us doing that, guess what? They will also grow up thinking prayer is non-essential. And I love the, the preaching that Brother Thomas shared on Wednesday about really treating prayer as an essential thing. We all know it's important, but we don't all, all treat it as essential. We can teach our children to have godly standards, but if the, our own standards are, are very loose, if our own standards are very worldly, the kids are not going to maintain biblical standards. They're not going to maintain godly standards. How can we expect them to if we're not doing it ourselves? We can teach them to serve God, to go to full-time ministry even. But if we never serve God ourselves, they will also be afraid to step out and serve. Verbal lessons and teachings are important. But if they aren't paired with action, our seeds of effort will fall on stony ground. We can keep teaching and teaching and teaching, but if we never exhibit our teaching ourselves, they're not going to listen as well. Many of the traits that I aspire to have in my own life are qualities that my parents didn't necessarily teach me, but are qualities that I see in them. Though my dad has taught me a lot about, about being patient, the greatest lesson has been just seeing my dad in action, being patient through very difficult situations. There's four siblings, and all of us butt heads very frequently. All of us have different mentalities and worldviews even. And we like to butt heads. And sometimes I'm amazed that my dad can be so patient with us. Sometimes I'm not even in the conversation. I'm, I'm losing patience from what I'm hearing. 
My dad, yes, taught me how to be patient, but I learned the importance of it by just watching him as he interacted with us. From my mom, yes, she's taught me to be generous, but I've seen her be very generous in how she acts. She's been sacrificial all her life, and when I see that generosity from her firsthand, that makes me want to be generous. And from both of them, I learned the, the value of hard work. Those things, yes, they taught it verbally, but those things became precious to me because they lived it out. That was the example that they set for me, and I aspired to follow them. That is the power of leading by example. If we want the next generation to be faithful, to be God-honoring prayer warriors who serve God with all their might, then we can't accomplish that if as leaders we're not, that we're not faithful, God-honoring prayer warriors. We can't expect our children to be something that we're not. We're not exemplifying in them. That is the key to training up more Timothys. Timothy and Titus were receptive of Paul's teachings because they ministered and saw Paul in action throughout his ministry. They saw how he handled certain situations. Timothy and Titus listened to Paul with, with open ears because they saw Paul's ministry firsthand and they realized how genuine he was in his teachings. Paul and Jesus, both of them led by example, and because of that, they were able to train faithful successors. Just like he led Timothy, through his example, Paul encouraged Timothy to do the same to others. 1 Timothy 4.12 Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. This is not just a message for pastors. This is not just a message for, uh, for parents. This is not just a message for the ministry leaders, but this is a message for everybody. Because no matter how young you may be, understand that there are people looking up to you. You might be of a young age and you might be wondering, who would possibly look up to me? For example, Leland. You have two younger brothers, Levi and Liam. And if, even if they never verbalize and vocalize it, they look up to you. And whatever you do, Honestly, they will follow. That's the nature of siblings. They always kind of have like quabbles, but they are always looking up to their older brothers and older sisters. All of us here tonight, even though we don't want people to look up to us, the nature of it is we can't choose that. There will be always people who are, be, who, who, who are inspired by maybe our ministry. Even if we are not worthy, even if we are not uh, um, good people in our own sight, there are people looking up to us. And because people are looking up to you, make sure you have a godly example that you're setting before them. Make sure that you are living right, living righteously, living wisely, living godly, living biblically, because you have an impact that you don't even know you have with other people. Where the next generation the children and the teenagers, when they see that the adults of today are closely following Jesus' footsteps, then they will more likely be, will be willing to follow our example. If they see us following Jesus, they will also have greater inclination to follow Jesus as well. Ultimately, our goal is not for them to follow us. 
We are not the end goal. Our goal is for them to follow us as we all follow Christ. We are not the end goal. Jesus Christ is. We're trying to inspire the next generation to also follow in Jesus' footsteps. And that's exactly what Paul said to the Corinthian church. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And I end with this. How do we ensure that the next generation of Christians will flourish, that the children will flourish, that the teenagers will flourish? By purposing in our hearts to lead by example. Folks, we have to lead by example. And we invest in the next generation by giving them a great and godly example to follow. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.